Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for the 399th show is Dr. Robert Dice, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, who will be talking to us about creating the Bible, revisiting the Word of God, and the work of man. Our history buffs are Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. And Terry, since you've been a sinner all these years, you get to start off. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> You're a librarian. What else are you? You're a sinner. <laughs> That's how you translate that word. Right. (laughs) I want to ask you about some of the biggest discoveries uh, in the last century. The first thing I think, of course, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. But so I'd like to ask you what the importance of that discovery was. And also, have there any been major discoveries uh, in regards to the Bible in this century, the 21st century? I'm, I'm not aware of any major discoveries in the 21st century. We're, we're still digesting the ones that we made in the 20th, the Nag Hammadi Library and, and the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s. Both of those have had a very profound impact on our understanding of the Bible. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls in particular, because of the fact that I think the only text of Jewish scripture that is the Tanakh, that is not included, at least in fragmentary form, the Dead Sea Scrolls, is Esther, the book of Esther. The, um, and a number of the others exist in usually not intact copies, but fragmentary copies, but enough that we can compare them to one another. And so what the Dead Sea Scrolls have done is they have opened our eyes to the fact that back in the middle of the first century, when they were deposited there, uh, there were, for example, four major variant copies of the prophet Isaiah that were present in the library at uh, Qumran, which is the Essene community down at the foot of the cliffs that we assume put the Dead Sea Scrolls up in the cave for safekeeping. So four very different versions of the prophet Isaiah in use in the first century CE And, and we don't hear any howls of protest about that from uh, Jewish authorities at the time. So in other words, that there were lots of variant traditions, textual traditions, and that people <clears throat> 2,000 years ago didn't lose as much sleep over that as we're apt to do today. And of course, with the Nag Hammadi Library, uh, all of those, this hidden library of Gnostic texts, salted away probably in the late 4th century, shows us just just how diverse the literature that was not included in the canon of the New Testament was, and and how strange some of that literature was. The types of things that that grassroots Christians who were literate were were familiarizing themselves with at the time. So what the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Library have done is they have greatly broadened the horizons of our view of Jewish and Christian scriptures. And they've also deepened our understanding of the complexity and the rich diversity within ancient Judaism and the early stages of Christianity. They've been very, very, very important. All right, Ed. 
Yeah, um, Bob, um, you mentioned earlier that uh, the, in your view, the King James Bible um, relied on faulty original texts for the Gospels and the New Testament um, is not well written at all. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? How how uh, how do you der- how do you arrive at the conclusion that these um, that these gospels uh, are on faulty original texts? How do you know what to believe? Well, the the reason why the the King James is is faulty, uh, it's, the original text it used was faulty. The translation is magnificent, but the reason they're faulty is because. The, uh, the Greek text of the New Testament that it used was put together by the great humanist Erasmus of Rotterdam back in the uh, 16th century, and he was under deadline pressure. Printing was new, so people weren't familiar with this at the time. But anyway, he was contacted by a printer in, uh, was it Basel? I think it was Basel, Switzerland, uh, who wanted to bring out a parallel Greek and Latin text of the New Testament because he knew that a cardinal in Spain was about to do the same thing, and he wanted to jump the gun on it. Well, Erasmus happened to be in town, and so he contacted Erasmus and said, would you be willing to put together a text of the New Testament in Greek for me? And Erasmus said, sure, without bothering to ask how much time he had, because this was early. And then the printer said, swell, I need it in three months. And so Erasmus was stuck with whatever manuscripts of the New Testament were available in the vicinity of Basel, and it turns out there were only four, and, uh, and those were faulty also. They were late, bad copies, and between the four of them, he didn't even have a complete copy of the Revelation to John. So what he ended up doing was taking St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate translation of the Revelation of John and retranslating it back into Greek, in the process, inventing a dozen new words that had never existed in classical Greek. So, but because it's Erasmus, that Greek text became instantly authoritative. So a century, or almost a century later, when, um, when the, the English panel of scholars was translating the Greek New Testament into English, of course they used Erasmus's text, and it becomes known as the, the Textus Receptus, the received text, um, because of a publisher's blurb in the early 18th century, is printing up a copy of the Greek New Testament, and described it in his blurb as the received text, the Textus Receptus, and everybody's just kind of taking that at face value without looking into where it got the name from, as they've taken the King James and Erasmus's Greek New Testament text at face value without looking into the challenges that Erasmus faced. He tried to revise it later on, but it was too late. The horse had already left the barn. <laughs> All right, a question. Let's talk to someone else who's known for um, translating the Bible. If I recall, um, Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, did he not? Uh, that, that's what we're told, and I don't think he had any reason to lie about that so so i and so again in comparison and maybe because you focus more on king james uh what was uh martin luther of course martin luther was trying to translate it in the language that was i mean german was obviously established through many of the regions what was to be germany but um he had his own uh uh operandum motif if i recall of translating the bible um uh what was his perspective behind translating it 
Now, I'm, I'm not familiar with, with, with what technique Luther, Luther used in translating, and I have heard it said a number of times that Luther's translation of the Bible into German is the seminal work, the founding work of German literature. So it's very important for, for, for German language and literature. But I, I don't know what technique did he use. Could you briefly describe it to me? No, I, and to be honest, that's all I ever heard. It was um, it's back to quoting uh, the professors that Jay and I had. Um, I recall that he did this with the purpose of trying to, as you said, educate the poor and use it as a tool which German could be based on, that you could educate the masses more widely through a text that they were interested in, of course, the salvation of their souls. But I was wondering uh, whether any stories, like you were talking about the previous um, scholars, that, uh, you know, that there was a, a deadline or that you had a king wanting to do certain things, or you haven't heard any of that. Well, I, I don't know that Luther, of course, is contemporary with Erasmus, and I don't know that Luther employed Erasmus's Greek text of the New Testament in his translation, or whether Luther who was not under publishing uh, pressure, uh, had the leisure of looking at a wider range of Greek texts in, um, in determining what, he, what his translation was going to say. Um, it, and, of course, the, one of the problems with, with Luther also is that Luther is breaking with the authority of Rome. And, right. uh, of course, the, the, the Catholic Church has always maintained quite properly that the, church, that, that the Bible did not make the Church, the Church made the Bible. That's just historical truth. And, but from a Protestant perspective, and I started out as a Lutheran, I ended up as an Episcopalian, but the, um, from that classic Protestant Sola Scriptura perspective, um, the Bible... The text of the Bible is the, the foundation, the source of all knowledge, all truth, and all faith, which is emphatically not the way that, that the Roman tradition sees it. It's not the way the Anglican one does either now. But, the, uh, but yeah, so, so he had a, a special axe to grind. The, the Bible is not an adjunct to faith in classical Lutheranism. It is the foundation of all faith, and, and so that puts it in a different kind of light. Okay. Um, Bob, my question really has to do because I think our, our audience has the sense that there are just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of whole texts uh, sitting around in, in universities and libraries from the uh, first and second century CE or from the third or, or second centuries BCE. Uh, can you kind of give us a sense of, of how complete uh, our earliest texts are and, and how many different um, physical pieces of text we have? The earliest complete copies of the New Testament that we have, complete copies, date to the 4th century, the later 4th century. Um, the, um, the texts that we have prior to the 4th century are uh, number, I got forgotten the exact number, and of course it might have changed over the last several years, but there are slightly over 100 of them. And one of the reasons why there are so few is that the last great persecution of Christians, the beginning of the 4th century, the Emperor Diocletian sent out the order that all copies of the Bible, of Christian scriptures, would be collected and, and burned. And, uh, and governors, for once, were really efficient about this. So, so, so there's very... 
Well, I mean, normally their attitude was just let, you know, let people believe what they want to believe. But the problem was you probably had to fill out a report and send it to Diocletian saying, this is how many copies I've destroyed. So the, the, uh, we, we have maybe uh, 100 plus, but not much over 100 fragmentary copies of uh, books of the, of the New Testament from prior to the early 4th century. And, um, and that poses some real challenges. Uh, our earliest complete copy of the Gospel of Mark, for example, is mid-4th century. Uh, we, we'll have, so we, I, I think I have an image in my PowerPoint that, that some of you got to look at of a, of a page or two out of a late 2nd or early 3rd century manuscript. And we count ourselves blessed to have that much text to look at compared to the earliest fragment we have, this postcard-sized piece of the Gospel of John from about 130. So there, there are no complete Bibles that exist prior to the mid-4th century, and everything that we have before that are fragments of varying sizes. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 399th show. Dr. Robert Dice, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa. We've been talking about creating the Bible, revisiting the Word of God, and the work of man. The history buffs for today's show were Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put K-A-L-A-H-D-2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.